Eyes cool. 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 Welcome back to the Eyes Cool podcast. It's called Eyes Cool because that sounds like iSchool. And the iSchool podcast is a production of students and faculty in the iSchool and the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The opinions expressed here do not reflect those of the Information School or of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm your host at the top middle and bottom of the episodes, Jonathan Senshin. I'm a professor at the UW-Madison iSchool and director of the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a review, recommend us to your friends, tell them they can find us at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all the podcast places. And thanks for listening. Here we are in season three, continuing on with our discussions with student groups and interviews with faculty. Go back in the feed a few episodes and you can find interview with new iSchool faculty, Jacob Thebolt Speaker, about his work in human-computer interaction, social computing, in conversation with our students. In the last episode, we heard from students talking about libraries, archives, and empire and Banned Books Week 2020. In this episode, we hear from two student groups. One is a discussion about academic libraries, an interview with a library director in the greater Chicago area, paying special attention to libraries in the age of COVID-19. After that, segment about misinformation and disinformation in the online information ecosystem. So first up, academic libraries. to the Eyes Cool podcast. Uh, I'm James Cook and I'm a first year at UW-Madison. Um, we're going to introduce the rest of the group in a second and this week we're going to be interviewing Peg Cook who is the library director at Elmhurst University. So uh, introductions, let's go. Um, hello, I'm Emily. I'm also a first year at UW-Madison High School. Hi, I'm Gloria Galicia, and I am also a first-year student at UW-Madison's iSchool. Hello, I'm Melissa Lawson, and as well, I am a first-year student at UW-Madison's iSchool. And I'm Christopher Perez, and uh, drumroll please, as I'm also a first-year at the same program as everyone else. So, as I said this week, we are interviewing uh, 
the woman who happens to be my mother, who <laughs> is the interim library director at Elmhurst University now. So um, Peg, why don't you briefly introduce yourself, um, just like who you are and what you do. Hi, so um, uh, I'm Peg Cook, as my wonderful son just uh, said. I'm the interim library director at Elmhurst University, which is a uh, small liberal arts college in the western suburbs of Chicago. Um, I've been at Elmhurst since 2006. I've been the interim director since uh, the summer of 2019 uh, when I took over when our uh, former director retired. Uh, I mostly do, um, my, my other title was reference and instruction librarian uh, with a big focus on information literacy. Uh, that's uh, the bulk of what I did. Um, and just as a little background, I came to librarianship from uh, other academic areas. I um, have a second master's degree in performance studies. I was an adjunct faculty member teaching speech and theater classes in the Chicago area for a number of years before I went to library school in 2003. Uh, got my degree and then um, was hired at Elmhurst um, pretty much immediately when I graduated. My former director had taught one of my library school classes, which is an excellent way to network yourself into a job. <laughs> is that is that good that's what you what you need to know <laughs> yeah that's great um so we want to get into sort of um current events in in a bit um but generally if you could give us an idea of like what like pre-covid pre um the present state of the world what the library looked like what your job looked like kind of what you did um sure. on the daily Right, so um, Elmhurst is, like I said, it's a small liberal arts college. We're, primary, we're about 60-40 commuter uh, residential students. So um, the library at, at, at Elmhurst was, uh, uh, we were wide open. Um, we're in Illinois, and in, in Illinois, um, we have a consortial uh, group that um, supports academic uh, and research libraries throughout the state. And one of the consortial rules is that if you're in the consortium, you need to be open to the public. So we were essentially um, open to the public, open to students. Um, students use the library as hangout space, as study space, um, and also you know, for, for research and used our, we have a small collection, relatively speaking, we have about 270,000 items um, and then uh, other electronic resources. Uh, we have a pretty robust information literacy program. Um, the five of us teach somewhere between 250 and 300 information literacy sessions a year. Um, my, uh, yeah, that's kind of unusual for um, some schools. We do, we do a lot of information literacy. We're embedded in the curriculum. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. It's a, a kind of an ideal situation for that sort of thing. Um, I did a lot of, inf I, I do a lot of teaching. Um, I work with our first year composition classes and developed the curriculum, the information literacy curriculum for those classes. Uh, we, we're a liaison model, so we each have a number of departments that we're uh, responsible for, um, that we support. Uh, at Elmhurst, we also, the librarians also do Blackboard support. Um, some of Blackboard support, that role's changed over the years. Uh, primarily, we do training faculty training and um, faculty handholding with regard to Blackboard. If they've got a problem, well, we're the people that they call and we help figure them out, help them figure it out. Um, you know, the library was, um, before COVID was, um, I, you know, we lots of campuses say that the library is the heart of the campus. Um, and I really think that before COVID, we really were kind of the heart of the campus. We have a, you know, we have a coffee shop, but it was kind of the place that students would come it was very much that I'll meet you at the library and we'll work on the thing. 
Uh, we had, you know, we have computers that students can use. Um, we have our, you know, our library classroom. Um, our library building is also home to our Center for Professional Excellence, which is essentially our career center, although international ed is also in that office. Our honors program has offices in the building. And then uh, in the 2018 year, we moved our learning center, uh, our tutoring center essentially, um, into the library as well. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of traffic in a normal year with people coming in and out for tutoring appointments or to go meet with a career counselor in a basement or um, you know some of that other stuff. So it was a busy building, a lot of people in and out, um, faculty in and out. Um, we have uh, a staff, a small but mighty staff. There are five faculty librarians uh, and then um, four full-time uh, access services and technical services staff and then six part-time access services and technical services staff. So the people who are on the circulation desk and then our um, small but mighty cataloging and, uh, and acquisitions, the people who buy things and catalog stuff when we get all that together. So I guess that's us in a nutshell. I know you guys have other questions and we have, we're on a time limit. So <laughs> feel free to ask me follow-up questions if you want you know, more information, but that's probably a, a nutshell picture. Okay, you mentioned that you um, had like had a different career before you um, went back to school to become a librarian. Um, can you give us some idea of like what exactly like led you to make that decision and why did you decide to do that? Um, yeah, let me see if I can make this a short, <laughs> the short, the short version of the story. So um, I completed a doctoral program in the early 90s. Um, but I never wrote my dissertation. So in academia, that's called ABD, all the dissertation. And, and there, there's usually a clock that runs out when you're in a PhD program that uh, you have a certain amount of time to finish your dissertation. And if you don't during that time, then too bad, so sad. Um, so I finished the doc my doctoral coursework. And then for a variety of reasons, I never wrote the book, um, including the fact that we started our family in that time period. And so it was a little bit... Um, easier for me to kind of just step into being to to teaching part-time like to doing adjunct teaching in various places and while i liked academia at the time i wasn't 100 percent sure i really wanted to dive into academia. i'm one of those people maybe some of you are like this as well that like um i'm really good at school <laughs> like really good at school <laughs> um and the, the idea of kind of leaving school was weird to me which is partly why i went into that phd program in the first place um, and then the idea that I could make a career out of being in school <laughs> um, seemed appealing. So, and, and doing the adjunct teaching while I had small children was very, um, uh, it was good. Like it was just enough of a job to, you know, a little bit of an income. Uh, you know, James's dad has a real job, so we didn't really need to worry about paying the rent. I didn't really need to worry about doing what some people have to do when they're adjuncting, which is teaching at three or four institutions at the same time to try to make ends meet. I was able to sort of be selective about where I was teaching. Um, but after a while, um, that started to feel really limiting. Like James is in kindergarten, essentially. And I was thinking, do I really want to do this for the next 20 years? Or would I like to have a grown-up job? <laughs> Um, and this was in the early 2000s when the American Library Association was starting to look at the demographics of who was a librarian at the time. And they were starting to freak out a little bit because they were uh, looking at the, uh, the, ba the baby boomers like aging out. Uh, and at the time there was, 
there was very low enrollment in library school programs. There was hardly anybody in library schools. So the, the American Library Association did this whole press thing. We're like, oh my God, there's nobody in library school. We're not gonna be librarians when the boomers die. Oh no, you know. Um, and so I read one of these articles and then I called my best friend who was a reference and instructional librarian at Bradley University in Peoria. And I said, hey, I just read this article. Is this true? And that there's going to be jobs, right? I mean, that's always what you're thinking about. Is there going to be a job when I finish this program? Um, and she's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, so should I go to library school? She's like, oh my God, you should totally go to library school. <laughs> so uh, it was either that or law school. And I'm really glad I didn't go to law school. I would have been really great at law school, but I probably would have been a really bad lawyer. Um, <laughs> so I started, I started library school, you know, as a, as a career changer, right? I mean, you guys are all lovely young people, but I was, uh, um, you know, a midlife career changer and um, that had its own set of challenges, um, but it also, it was really um, beneficial to me, I think, to come into academic librarianship, having come from an academic background, right? Like I knew, I knew the game, I knew the lay of the land, I knew how academia works, um, and that's, I think, really helped me be a better um, academic librarian, and it's been helpful as I've taken over this this leadership role in my library. So, does that an that answers your does that answer your question? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, um, that actually leads to an interesting question. So, like we said, we've been talking about some more well, not not modern problems. These are problems that have really haunted the library profession for a while now. Sure. Um, and your perspective will be different than ours, as we are generally younger crowd coming into this with expectation. Um, have you heard of the concept vocational awe before? I have, yeah. James and I talked about it a little bit, but yeah, it's been something that's been talked about in the literature for a little while. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'll try to keep this as succinct as possible for time, but um, over the past couple of years, um, there's been stories and public libraries and public librarians having to administer Narcan and that's been kind of used in our class as an example of vocational awe. And feel free to address that example if you have experience with it. But I was wondering, like, has there ever been a time in your library career where you've been asked to do something that was beyond your expectation of what you should be doing? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things you guys are probably starting to figure out is that the academic library world and the public library world, while they sit next to each other, they're, they're distinct in some ways, right? Um, you know, I said we are open to the public, so we have had situations, um, you know, even in DuPage County where there's homeless people sometimes who come in and, and want to use our library. We locked down our computer network, so we get less of that now. Um, but, you know, sometimes you, we will come in in the morning and there'll be somebody sleeping in our foyer, right? And that's a little bit of that, what is our responsibility to, to those people? You know, it's a little different than the public librarians who have protocols, right? <laughs> and, and, and rules set up around that where we, it's more like, you know, are we, we're welcoming, how welcoming are we? Um, how much do we wanna help support that person? How much do we encourage them to go to the public library, which is across the street from us? So there's that kind of situation. But I really think that this COVID thing, you know, I'll, I'll spin that around to that, uh, to, the, to the current events. I really think that that, um, I know for me and my colleagues at Elmhurst has really uh, pushed that button for us a little bit because uh, we are, um, we're frontline workers. I mean, I know public librarians have been talking about this for a year, almost a year now, right? But we, we really are frontline workers in a way that, um, uh, that 
academic librarians never really thought about having to be before, right? The resp our responsibility to keep the library open, to, to be available to students, to make sure that we're meeting, uh, you know, trying to meet our educational goals in the same way that other faculty have been trying to meet our educational goals, um, while at the same time trying to not get sick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, we're an older crowd in our library. I think the youngest of the librarians is 48. Um, and, you know, we're not in the quote unquote COVID danger zone, not all of us, but at the same time, you know, there's um, the feeling that you're putting your own personal health and safety on the line in order to make the building available to the students, you know, I mean, you know, James started out by asking me what was it like before. Um, we, you know, we were wide open. I, you know, please come in, <laughs> make yourself at home. You know, now it's kind of like, I don't know if I want those students in the building. Like, don't come in and breathe on me, you know? <laughs> um, and that's really hard. You know, I had to yell at a student yesterday. I didn't yell, but I had to, <laughs> I had to address a student. Uh, we have our, our athletes come into the library and they sit in the basement and have study tables. And, um, there was a group of them down there and I walked down, I, I was doing a walkthrough, I walked down and one, I saw one of the kids had his mask off. And so I started to say, put your mask on and I realized he was eating. And normally, in the before times you wanna eat in the library, knock yourself out and just clean up after yourself. Now, I don't want you sitting there with your mask off for 15 minutes eating a sandwich, right? <laughs> Keep your mask on, if you gotta eat, go outside. <laughs> so I had to like have this conversation with him in front of the rest of the lacrosse team <laughs> about, you know, I had to be the, the, I had to be the scoldy librarian and I hate that, right? You know, the, the idea that um, rather than kind of being welcoming or whatever, it's, and it's, it's changing the dynamic of that and uh, of my relationship with students, our interactions with students. And I really, that's the part of that that I'm having a hard time with. You know, it's the, that tension between uh, this very, we, we try really hard to not be shushy librarians. Like we really try, we try really hard to be um, friendly and accessible and all the rest of that stuff. And now I have to walk around the building and yell at people because they don't have their masks on. And, and I hate that. It makes me want to cry. So, um, yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't want, you know, my goal all along here and trying to set up our COVID policies was like, I don't want the library to be a hotspot. You know, I don't, I don't want us to be the center of the outbreak on campus. And in order to do that, I have to put rules in place that we never had before. And it's, it's just as uncomfortable for, for me um, as it has been for anybody else, right? Yeah, I have a question that might help uh, dovetail into our last question. Yeah, um, sort of about that. Um, do you think uh, being, the director um is it puts you in a different sort of position than if you were just a like faculty librarian right now do you think like having to make those decisions makes it harder to deal with the sort of weight of it yeah uh, yes and also let me say that i was just talking to one of my uh, librarian colleagues yesterday who's a little bit more connected to the network of other librarians in the in the Chicago area. So he's been having more conversations with other libraries about like what they're doing and how they're doing things. And in some schools, I don't know about, about UW, but like in some schools, um, the policy, the overall policies of what the library is supposed to be doing right now were handed down by a provost, 
right? The provost is like, you need to be open, you need to do this, you need to have this access or, or not, or you need to be closed, you know, whatever. Like a provost made that decision and the library director is responsible for implementing, right? And figuring out, well, what exactly does that mean boots on the ground, right? Uh, in the case of Elmhurst, and every institution is different, man. Every, every school, every organization has their own culture. And at Elmhurst, nobody was telling me what to do. I had no guidance. It seemed like nobody was making decisions about any of the other public buildings on campus and what they were supposed to be doing. Um, so I just had to make some decisions, <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm the sort of person, I'm the sort of manager that I like to have my team involved. So it's not like I sat in my office for three days and wrote a bunch of notes and then delivered the, the message on from on high. We had lots of meetings. And we, we all sat down on our Zoom screens, right? And, and had lots of conversations about what can we handle? Um, you know, what, what procedures can we put into place? We were doing a lot of reading of um, the, the news and the literature that was coming out of the library world about what, what people were starting to think would be safe procedures or good policies to put into place. And we were trying to, you know, take some of that and adapt. Um, and it, it's, been, it's been huge. I, um, I never really wanted to be a library director, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, perhaps some of you have that ambition and yay. Um, but I, you know, I, I came at this as a career changer, like I said, fourth career. I never really thought I was going to climb the, the ladder. And so I never really wanted to be a library director. And I, I am. And I'm also a library director in this moment. So feeling responsible. I mean, ultimately speaking, I am responsible, you know, for people's health and safety, for our, you know, for our students, for the perception of the library on campus, right, which is another big thing, like you, I, implementing policies that make it seem to students like it's hard to get in the library is bad. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Um, but at the same time, I kind of want to make it hard to get in the library because it's safer to do it. You know, that's safer for everybody. Um, and trying to balance that has been very stressful. Yes. Very stressful. Anyway. All right, Melissa, you want to hit that last question? Yep. So um, in talking about like being a head librarian, like what was the transition like from just like your normal um, job as like a reference librarian to being the head librarian. Um, maybe it doesn't have to be specific to now, but it can sure. also be like what was happening before COVID and then like kind of how it, you know, pro it definitely evolved right. like during COVID. Right. Um, just kind of that. Yeah. Um, so this is going to vary institution by institution, right? Because, you know, just like every school has its own culture, every library has its own culture. Um, one of the things that concerned me is I moved from being, you know, this sort of adjunct faculty member where you're essentially an independent contractor, right, to actually working in a library is like, I, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have a boss. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and I was fortunate in that my, our former director really kind of viewed the library faculty as just an academic department, which means that our, our, her management style was very collaborative, right? It was, we were, we were a team, we made decisions together if we wanted to do something. You know, you would bring it to her and she'd be like, yeah, sure, that's cool. That's, and that's not how it works everywhere, right? It was just, this was the particular style that we had. So I went from being um, a collaborative team member to kind of being the leader of the team, right? 
So I, a phrase that pops around in my head sometimes when people ask me this is I, I feel like I'm the fir like first among equals, right? Like um, everybody else has just as much input and, um, and expertise. And, um, you know, some of my librarian colleagues have been there way, at Elmhurst way longer than me, right? I've been librarians way longer than me. So I, I rely on their, um, expertise and input, right? Um, one of the biggest things that the challenges I had was there were aspects of the library director's job that I kind of deliberately ignored <laughs> for years. <laughs> um, things like budgeting, man, I'm really bad at math. Um, so, and also our former director was, that was one thing she kept kind of close to her vest was budgeting and numbers. She didn't share a lot of that with everybody. So I didn't know a lot about it. I have had no, I have no experience running a budget and it turns out it's not that big a deal, at least in Elmhurst. Um, but I, a lot of that stuff, I was like, la, 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 la over the years, right? I wasn't <laughs> deliberately not paying attention to some of that thing. Some of those things, um, personnel stuff, like uh, we had a situation, I'm not gonna get into too many details, but when I took over last summer, there was a personnel situation that required, um, me to keep my mouth shut. I was involved, but I had, you know, it was a, it was a title nine thing. And I, I, I like walked into that <laughs> and had to learn real quickly. Like, how is you, what are my responsibilities as a manager in this situation? What are my responsibilities to my employee, to the university, all the rest of that stuff. And that, that, those are things like employment law or the, I mean, I did my title nine training as a faculty member, like everybody else does, <laughs> but like the, how that plays out when you're actually you have an employee who's in a title nine hearing process that was a whole nother ball of wax that i was just not um i was not paying any attention to right i would say and i'm gonna make a general statement i could be wrong um library directors don't get any more training than librarians generally speaking i mean there there are like leadership programs that you can do that are sort of continuing education or um, you know, you can, um, there are mentorship programs in some cases that you can get involved with that will um, build your skills towards that. Um, but it's a little bit like some other professions where like, you just learn it by doing it, right? Um, I said a little while ago, I, I felt like I was too old to sort of follow the path, a path to being a director, because what I probably would have done if I'd been your age when I started at Elmhurst, is I would have worked there for five or six years, I would have built up my information literacy cred, and then I would have moved to another job managing an information literacy program at a bigger school, right? And then that would have been a jumping off point to be a director or a dean somewhere else. And um, I, I didn't have the time to do that. I, and I didn't really have the interest in doing it, but that would have been the path, right? Um, and, and by doing that job, by, by being the director of a program, like that's where you learn the management skills and probably a little bit of the budgeting and stuff, you kind of pick it up where I was sort of thrown into that um, when our director left and the, the, our dean at the time was like, we're not replacing her. I was like, okay, that's nice. What are we, what are we doing? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, you guys will find as you, you know, as you enter your careers that there's plenty of opportunities for um, different kinds of professional development. I, I mean, I, I'll give you a little advice for a second. I highly recommend you go to conferences when conferences are a thing again, um, because going to those workshops and going to, um, uh, ALA and ACRL, which is the College and Research Libraries chunk of ALA, um, has lots of um, 
roundtable discussions at conferences, which are really cool because there'll be a topic and you just go sit there and people will talk and then you can talk. It's a great way to network and to learn um, how people do their jobs and what some of the challenges are. Um, you eat your lunch and, and, and have a chat with some, some folks. Those are, those are a really good opportunity. Um, and then I also did, uh, the ACRL runs a program called Immersion. I don't know if any of you guys are thinking academic library and informational literacy instruction, but um, uh, the Immersion programs are, uh, it's like, it's library camp. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a week long, uh, I don't know, it's almost like a semester's worth of class in a week on how to teach right or how to assess what you teach and i did the assessment one a few years ago i went to seattle for a week it was glorious um and it was super beneficial it was very helpful i got to meet a bunch of people uh i it, it was all about like building a project and how to work on an assessment project it was um, just a really great thing to do so i would really advise you guys to look for those opportunities uh, funding them is problematic. I don't know that I'd get my school to pay for the thousand dollars for immersion for a week right now, but if you have the opportunity and you're working someplace where they'll help you pay for it, then um, take advantage of those. That would be um, a, a partial answer to that question. That's partly how you learn what you're doing is take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. So. All right. So we are um, getting well over time. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, no, this has been really uh, informative and wonderful. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll just, I'll close out if we're, if we're cool with that, uh, friends. Cool. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Peg, for talking with us. Um, this has been really informative and wonderful. Um, and, uh, yeah, we will see you on our next, uh, session of the podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. All right, and next we get misinformed. That's not right. We hear about misinformation. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the iSchool podcast. Your hosts for this episode are Victoria, Sam, Danielle, Oli, and Aaron. Today we will be discussing contemporary access to information, as well as misinformation, specifically on social media. This is Victoria speaking. What interests me about this topic is the conveniency of accessing information on smartphones. Well, and I'm Sam, and what interests me on this topic is that I think misinformation, fake news, etc., is one of the major challenges facing our society today. And I figured with uh, us being in a, ma a master's program in library and information studies, it, who better to talk about and address and maybe come up with some solutions to these problems that we face. This is Danielle, and what interests me about this topic is the use of social media to spread misinformation. This is Oli, and what interests me about this topic is um, actual physical lack of access to information that usually hurts uh, marginalized people within the United States. And this is Erin. Like Danielle, I'm also interested in the use of social, social media as an information source and how it uh, spreads misinformation. So our first talking point, uh, starting things off, we'll start with uh, the contemporary lack of access to information. Anyone want to start with it? Yeah, so I think what we're mainly focusing on here is the lack of access to just internet in general. 
Um, so we found this one article from the Pew Research Center saying that 10% of Americans don't use internet and who are they? And from this article, um, in this uh, 10%, the likely demographics are people who are elderly, people earning less than $30,000, uh, people without a high school diploma and people of color are more likely to not have access to the internet. 10% doesn't sound like a, a big number, but considering that it's, it's the use of the internet, I, I thought it would be much lower than, than 10%. Mm -hmm. And that's also 35 million people, which is quite a vast amount of people. Um, you know, that's pretty much larger than any city within the United States. And with so much of our information going on the internet, um, even now compared to 20 years ago, it's amazing at how much less somebody is going to have access to uh, now versus then, uh, whereas with uh, print media while being present, it's, it's less um, available perhaps than uh, going online to find information, whether it be through uh, uh, through the news or through the social media. I also wonder about actual physical um, access to information even when you're online, um, such as paywalls or just restricted websites um, that you need like a VPN to get around, um, which I think further complicates this, that while 10% don't have physical access, um, there's still physical barriers, even when you do have access. Yeah, and I think, you know, it it's probably is varies from country to country in terms of the specific issues that they face um, in terms of access. But in the United States, I wonder if the paywall issue is also comes about where if you, for example, go on to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times website, you are usually limited to maybe one or two uh, quote free, free free articles a day, and after that, you either have to pay a subscription fee or you need to um, go go try to find information from from a different source. And so, in a way, if you if you are somebody who uh, comes from a lack of, of means, the subscription fee to one of those maybe mainstream institutions, despite being being valuable, would be difficult for you to make work so you know if the logic might be why am i why would i be paying to get this news source when i could go elsewhere and there's plenty of websites that uh, claim to be um, news organizations that i can get for free when they operate more on a, a click for uh, ad basis yeah one thing i found um just sort of thinking about this topic um and not even going off of the internet, um, but just lack of access to information, e you know, equals being misinformed is, I, I would argue that the U.S. Supreme Court has sort of argued this and legalized it in the sense of um, the Miranda rights, which I'm sure most people are familiar with, the sort of rights that the police read you when you're being arrested. Um, you know, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to attorney if you can't afford one. Um, you know, all that came about because of a court case. It was, I think, Miranda versus Arizona in 1966. But there was a person who was arrested who ended up um, indicting himself because he wasn't aware of his own rights. Um, and because of the Fifth Amendment says you have the right not to um, 
you know, incriminate or yeah, not indict yourself, uh, incriminate yourself. He, the court basically ruled he didn't have access to the information that was in the constitution, which therefore meant he was misinformed, which meant his case had to be thrown out. Um, so I would argue that even the U.S. Supreme Court has said that lack of information equals misinformation, um, which can obviously cause all sorts of problems. And back then, you know, it was physical access to the Constitution. I, I can't really imagine, like, trying to learn about the U.S. government and all the laws and everything before the Internet. Like, that uh -huh. had to be impossible. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, but I, I'm curious if, you know, same situation now, if this person didn't have access to the internet, if it would still be, you know, ruled similarly, that just not, you know, maybe not having enough income to afford internet um, could potentially, like, you know, lead to the same outcome. <clears throat> I wonder if it hinges on the avail availability of libraries because that's where people who don't have the internet or we would hope that they would go to, to find information. Um, I don't know how, how popular it is to, to still go to the library to seek out information. Um, well, I think that most um, counties do operate some kind of a law library that individuals can go and use to try to as best they can research uh, uh, research the, the case or the issues that is before them. But uh, again, I think it's also this interesting issue about how much can one be expected to know uh, when it comes to complicated issues, you know, and especially when we talk about something like constitutional law is this very uh, arcane subject that affects us all, but we, might not have a good understanding of it. So then to try to tie it back into the examples of information, it almost feels like as the librarians, we have to really try to work hard to make this um, easily accessible and available to patrons uh, and, and um, so, that, so that we can understand it and better become better informed. So is just providing, you know, a, a basic access to the internet what librarians' role should be, or should there be further, uh, should librarians' roles include, like, further education to patrons on, like, how to find, you know, reliable sources um, and not just, you know, basic social media news? I think that's a great segue into the conversation about the convenience of information. Um, because even though there's the big issue of 10% of people not having internet, so they don't um, have that as uh, accessible, um, we do have a large amount of Americans who are mainly getting their information and news from social media. Um, and I think as librarians, you have, you have to figure out how to combat that because i i think that's a that's a big issue i don't know about if combat it is like the correct words because like or is it just you know once you get the basic 
you know, headline from social media, like, where can you go after that to like, read up about it? Because I myself, like, I mean, in the past week, what were the major like news? It was like the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Trump, you know, testing positive for COVID. I learned all this stuff from Twitter. Mm -hmm. But like, after I, you know, got that from Twitter, then I'm looking up, you know, NPR, New York Times, like, what can I find from any anything that's not just like a social media post to, to verify this. And I, I don't know if like, that's the step where some Americans are missing. Like they're only getting that like headline and stopping there. I, I think it is a big issue of, of them just getting the headline and not reading on about it. Um, especially in our, uh, in the reading from Sophia Noble on algorithms of oppression. Um, she quoted, or she stated that, uh, in some cases, uh, journalists are encouraged to modify headlines and add keywords to promote uh, greater traction and sharing amongst readers. So they're they're actively trying to get people to, I guess, kind of clickbaity headlines. I wonder if part of this whole, um, like you mentioned, getting people to share, getting people, you know, clickbait headlines, like, how many news stories can you go through with high-speed internet? How many times can you share stuff with other people? Like quite a bit, right? You can have like 120 tabs open going through news stories. But that requires high-speed internet. And not a lot of people sort of think about, you know, how internet has advanced with like broadband and how it's going to have to keep advancing to keep up with this. Um, so I just wonder also if the technology of broadband um, and the ability to constantly share and constantly look um, has sort of affected the way in which we read headlines. We have the ability to just, oh, that's a headline, close, you know, this article from the New York Times. Whereas back in the day, if you loaded a web page, you're going to want to read all of it because it probably took five minutes. But I suppose it's not even necessarily just broadband, but the fact that uh, mobile uh, phone usage, I think, is where more and more people are getting access to the internet and online and there is a kind of this sense of uh one one you have a smaller screen so therefore you might be more inclined to look at headlines but also then are able to quickly tab into you know maybe a different different app um and share things that way it's become very convenient to um find information on social media and i i think a lot of people are relying on that conveniency and, and don't seek out more. Yeah. And I, I would say we're probably all guilty of it. I mean, even us yeah. in the MLIS program, I don't, anyone who says that they don't do it, they do. I mean, it's like the easiest way, not just to get news, but like mixed in with your news, you have like entertainment as well. So it's like, yeah. how quickly can you just be like scrolling Twitter and oh, yeah. like, you know, catching up with friends, seeing like hot topics in the world and all in one yeah. place. So then let's circle back to the, the librarian's role in this, where how can librarians help? Yeah, I mean, so at the very basic, like just providing a computer with internet. I mean, we saw that in, you know, reading Susan Orlean's The Library book, and she explains, like, how, you know, from the moment the library opens to when it closes, there's, like, a line waiting for computers. And, like, even now, you know, in the pandemic, Madison Public Libraries, they're completely closed to the public unless you're, you know, creating a, uh, an appointment to use a computer. And I think that goes a bit back to the lack of 
um, physical access. Um, Cause like you said, um, you need a computer to do it. Um, but I think also as far as a librarian's role, I remember as a kid using the Yahoo directories before it was really a search engine um, and sort of the librarian at, at my school showing us how to go through, like, here's where you'd find this category, here's where you'd find this category. Um, obviously those things don't really exist anymore. Um, but I think even librarians teaching basic like Boolean operators in search engines um, could be very helpful in the sense of you're less likely to get super targeted information um, based on search history, whether it be from you personally or the library. Um, so I think there are some basic computer skills that librarians could teach to help filter out, again, super targeted information that isn't meant to inform, but meant to get you to click. I think that's great stuff for um, people who don't have access to the internet or who have accessibility issues. Um, when it comes to the, the conveniency of information and the use of getting your information on social media, I think it's important for librarians to promote libraries and the institution of um, doing more research to, f to find more information on topics and not just focusing on headlines. Thank you for listening to the Eyes Cool podcast. We'll be back in your feeds very soon with new episodes. Thank you.